Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When new leaders take over a team or an organization, there's always a renewed focus on the basics, making sure that the proper foundation for success is in place. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, Salt and Light, God's Vision for the Church, with this sermon entitled, The Focus of the Church, which covers Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, we, we do want to just... Uh, reiterate and, and say that, uh, that God is the author of life uh, and that that life begins at conception, that we want in every way as the body of Christ, um, as the salt and light, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, be the medium through which God brings both the, uh, the flourishing of life and the protection of life at every level uh, along the way, and that that would be demonstrated in glorious ways through his church. Um, And so you'll be hearing more. Caleb will actually, at the end of our service this this morning, he'll share a little bit more about ways that you can learn more about how we as a church are involved in, uh, in engaging with the sanctity of life efforts in our city. We're in this series called Salt and Light. We're now four, this is our fourth week And we started with looking at that passage out of Matthew chapter 5 on salt and light that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we've taken the last couple of weeks and we're walking through the book of Titus answering the key question, what is God's vision for the church? What does it look like for God's people to be salt and light? And how did Paul give specific instructions to a young pastor named Titus to establish the church in a pagan, godless place and it become what the church is designed to be uh, according to God's desire and vision for the church. And so we've answered some key questions. We're asking four key questions as we go along in the book of Titus. The first is uh, in that first chapter, we talked about how is the church to be led And the simple answer was by godly elders, that the very first thing that Paul told Titus was appoint elders in the church to lead out of godly character. So we talked about that in chapter one. In chapter two, last week, we dove into what is the church to teach? And the the answer to that is sound doctrine. What does it mean to teach sound doctrine? And so uh, we, we explored that. What do we believe here at Perimeter Church to be the sound doctrine uh, that the Bible gives us that we teach here? And then what is, the, what is the motivation behind that? What is it that trains us for righteousness? What is it that uh, propels, if you will, sound doctrine? And we talked about how it's the grace of God that trains us for righteousness. This week, we're gonna be addressing the question What is the church to be focused on or what is the church to be centered on? And so as we lead into that, I'll I'll tell you this, kind of as a quick little orientation here. I love sports movies. I don't know that many of you are surprised by that. One of the greatest sports movies ever made was Hoosiers. 
1986, Gene Hackman. What a great movie about this little nobody team in Hickory, Indiana. It's loosely based on a true story of this tiny little town that worships basketball, if we want to be honest, pulls together this team that had struggled over the years. And Gene Hackman and his character, he comes in after a, a little bit of a, a rocky past. He had not coached in 11 years, but they bring him in uh, because he knows the, the principal of this school and he's tasked with coaching the basketball team. Now he comes in though with what you might call some un, unorthodox practices in the way that he wants to establish this team. So this great scene towards the beginning of the movie where he shows up for the first practice and the volunteer coach was already there doing what they would normally do and he keeps saying, shoot, shoot, you can't score unless you shoot. And Gene Hatman gets the ball from him and he um, not so politely kicks the volunteer coach off the court and says, this is no longer your court, it's my court. He loses a couple of players along the way and now he's left with just five players. And this is what he does in his first practice. He says, put, put down the balls. You're not going to need the balls today. We're going to be practicing fundamentals to start off with. And now that began with just a lot of running, a lot of conditioning. And then towards the end of practice, they're not shooting with the basketballs, but they're doing all kinds of passing drills and dribbling drills. And the whole time he's talking to them as they're doing this about the importance of the fundamentals. And one of the players, as he's running past him, he says, coach, when do we get to shoot? And he says something to the effect of, uh, you'll shoot when it's time, but we have to learn to be a team that passes and is based on the fundamentals. Later in the movie, this team has gone above and beyond and is one game away from the state finals and he's given his pregame speech to the team. And he says this, He's, he says, remember the fundamentals that we have gone over time and time again. And we know this about sports. Any great coach is going to constantly bring it back to the fundamentals of the game. Because what's the natural tendency of a player? The natural tendency of a player is to get away from the fundamentals and, and try to be more and more uh, impressive in how they play the game. And the more you don't come back to the fundamentals, the farther off track you get as a team and as an individual player. Any coach will tell you, any coach who's a good coach will tell you, you've got to stay focused on the fundamentals even throughout the season. Because here's the truth. The fundamentals is not only what gets you started in the game, but the fundamentals have to be centric for as long as you play the game. Otherwise, you become less and less effective as a player. Now, the same is true for Christianity. The same is true for what God has given us in terms of living out who we are as the church. And what he's told us is this. He said that you have to stay focused on what has to be centric. And it's the gospel. This is why you hear churches oftentimes, why you hear us oftentimes say, we want to be gospel-centered in all that we do. 
But it's the, it's the nature of the human heart to want to move past what we think we've already mastered. Right? So when we say, even now, just now, when some of you who've been in or around church for a long time, maybe you've been Christian for, a Christian for a number of years, there's a temptation that when you hear me say, we have to come back to the fundamentals of the gospel, that you go, okay, I know that. Of course, like, and we, we tend, we, we have this tendency to want to say, teach me something deeper, which there's all kinds of ways in the church that we want to go deep. We have all thing, all kinds of things that we dig deep into the scriptures, but there's, listen, you, you can't miss this. The gospel, as it's been said, is shallow enough for the smallest child to wade in, but deep enough for the greatest diver to never reach the bottom. It doesn't get deeper than the gospel because what the gospel tells us is that we are a people who are riddled with sin and who by nature are in opposition to God. And that if there weren't the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ, there would be no hope for us. So that's the way we get into the kingdom by understanding that by embracing the reality that we are sinners deserving the wrath of God, but by the grace of God, we are now forgiven through Christ based on nothing that we have done, but based entirely upon his finished work. That's the beginning of the game, if you will. That's how you start the game with the fundamentals of the ABCs of the gospel. But even if you're 80 years old and you've been walking with Christ for 65 years, what do we need every single day of our lives? We need to come back to every morning remembering the gospel. Remembering who I am, who I was apart from Christ, who I am now because of Christ, and who God is making me more into, how he's making me more into the image of Christ. Because, here's why it's so important. One, it continues compelling a fresh love for God, the more that we center and focus on the gospel. But secondly, it's the motive that propels how we are to live the Christian life. Last week, I talked about that the, the fuel is God's grace. Another way to say that is the fuel for the Christian life is the gospel. It's the gospel and the empowering of the Holy Spirit as a result of us remembering the gospel in our lives. That's where we're headed this morning. That's where Paul is headed with Titus. He's telling him now, here is what we're to be focused on as people of God. This is what we are to be living out. Here's the fundamental truth for where we're headed this morning in the text of Titus chapter three. Simply this, the gospel compels us to be a distinctly different people who are exploding with good works to the glory of God. I mean, think, think about, it. I mean, I know that word is a little, maybe a little dramatic, exploding with good works, but that's kind of, we're going to talk about this more next week in the last week of this, is, is that that's what God's getting after about the church. He's saying, look, Titus Plant these churches in Crete that will explode with good works because uh, it's full of people who have been transformed by the gospel. 
There, there's this distinct difference about how people who know Jesus live because of the transforming work of the gospel in them. And Paul keeps hitting that over and over again. So as we get into chapter three, here's the first thing I want you to see. First, he gives Titus a fundamental reminder. A fundamental reminder. Your Bible translation may start with that very word. Mine does. Starts with remind. Remind in chapter three, verse one. Now, look, I'm one word in. and I already need to stop and say something. Remind. Why would he say remind? Okay, well, naturally, that means that Paul is saying to Titus, look, I want you to remind them again of something that we've already taught them. Keep going back to it. Keep fleshing it out. Keep going back to the truths of what we are to be as followers of Christ. What does it look like to be salt and light? Keep reminding them. Keep reminding them. Keep reminding them. I love this quote by John Stott where he says, all conscientious Christian teachers, once they have been delivered from the unhealthy lust of originality, take pains to make old truths new and stale truths fresh. That's the, that's the responsibility of a, of a preacher in many ways, is to say, okay, how do, we, how do we take something that we go, okay, I know that, I, I, know, I, I know the gospel, if you're a Christian. You go, yeah, okay, give me something more. And we go, no, no, we gotta keep going back to the fundamentals because it's absolutely necessary to the health of my, of my life in Christ. There's a great uh, story that was told about Martin Luther where uh, a congregant came to him and said, why do you preach the gospel every single Sunday? And Martin Luther's response was, because every single Monday you stop believing it. And so we gotta keep coming back to it. We gotta keep coming back to it. Keep coming back to the reality that apart from Christ, I can do nothing that it's by his grace and by his grace alone. What's interesting though, is the first thing that he tells them, tells Titus to remind them of. And before I read this, I want you to know something. I'm not smart enough or slick enough to have planned this out. Okay, what I'm about to read, I did not look at the calendar thinking this will be the Sunday after we inaugurate a new president. I wish I could say, man, I really planned that out, but I didn't, but God knew. And God in his providence knew that this would be the text that we're looking at when for some of us, where we are governmentally is not where we long to be. For others of us, it is where we wanna be. And we live in a world where some of us can't understand the other side. And so where do the scriptures lead us in that? Listen to what, Titus chapter three, verse one says, it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, listen, that's a hard text. Can you imagine how hard of a text that would be an instruction that would be for the original readers of this? These are Christians in the Roman empire. 
And they know that the Jewish people have already been experiencing persecution from the Roman Empire. And now as new converts to this new weird way called Christianity, they're being persecuted even more. They're being ostracized even more through the Roman government and its leadership. And Paul has the audacity to say, submit and obey to your governing Figures, and he doesn't just say this once. This is a part of his regular teaching. He says it in Romans 13. He says it to another young pastor in 1 Timothy 2. Peter, the apostle Peter says it in 1 Peter 2. This is something that is a consistent teaching in the New Testament to early Christians who are under the reign of a government that is not friendly towards them. Interesting. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, Paul Paul had already established in chapter one uh, the character of the Cretans. The people who live on the island of Crete are not people that you and I would say, hey, let's go hang out with them. This is what he said in chapter one, if you remember. He said, uh, he's quoting one of their own philosophers that said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Stand up people, I tell you. But then we read stuff from the ancient Greek historian Polybius. He documented that Cretans, this is what he said about the Cretans, were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and wars. This is the type of people they were. Can you imagine how Titus was like, hey, Paul, thanks for sending me here. Daniel Aiken, in his commentary on this passage, says this. He says, Christians are not anarchists or rebels. We do not subvert the government or disobey the government unless it brings us into direct conflict with the commands of God. And even then, our disobedience is passive, not active. And we, will, and we willingly accept the consequences of our actions. This submission is evidence of submission to and trust in God. One of the things that Paul is doing here is he's progressing through the stages, the, the arenas of life. So you go back to chapter one, what's he doing? He's talking about how should we live in the church in terms of its leadership. It starts from the top. What should our character be? What does godly character look like from our leaders? Then in chapter two, he moves from the organization of the church and the government of the church into our daily personal and family lives where he begins to work out the evidence of sound doctrine in our life in young women and young men and older men and older women. He's talking about from the church proper into the daily lives of those who are in the church. And now in chapter three, he's moving into the public and the social arena. And he's saying, here's what he's saying. At every level, in every arena, Christians are to be distinctly different, profoundly different. In fact, here's the fundamental truth that I want to go ahead and give you for this, for this morning. The fundamental truth is this. The gospel compels us to be a distinctly different people who are exploding with good works for the glory of God. Now that sounds like a dramatic word, exploding with good works, but that's what, that's what Paul is trying to say to Titus. Look, you're establishing churches in an incredibly godless place. What should mark you? What should be different about you? There should be this unique distinction among the church of Jesus Christ that is so explosive with good works that the world around is automatically drawn into it. 
and to this life that is present within the church individually and corporately. And so he gives this fundamental reminder. That's the first thing I want you to see this morning. He gives this fundamental reminder, remind them. But it's not just in our public life with the government. It's also in our social lives. He begins to press in socially in verse two. Listen to what he says in verse two. He says, we're also to be a people to be reminded to not speak evil or to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Wow. There's two terms, there's two phrases in this in that verse, in that one verse that make me incredibly uncomfortable and to make me want to ask, surely, surely aren't there some exceptions? And it's the phrase is no one in all people. When he says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's like, oh, wait, Paul, do you, is that like, did you miss right there? Like you mean all people and no one? And he doesn't leave any room for exceptions. This is a hard text. You know, I, I think it's so important to remember though, that what Jesus was establishing with the kingdom of God was so different so beyond anything that we would establish in the way that we function, not only with him, but with one another. I want you to think back to when Jesus called the 12 disciples. He could have called any 12 in all of Israel, but he calls the 12 that he did, and it's been well-documented about the fishermen. Uh, they were just average Joes, don't know much, you know, that kind of thing. We've talked Christianity. We've, we've established that really well. What I haven't heard as much is this. Out of the 12 that he chose to follow him, he was very particular in making sure that he picked two men from the opposite end, the full opposite end of the spectrum politically. On one end, he picks Matthew, the tax collector, who was faithful to Rome who most Jewish people, if not all of them, saw him as a traitor because he would take their money and give it to Rome who oppressed them. So that's one end of the spectrum. In the far total opposite end of the spectrum, you have Simon the Zealot, who has devoted his entire life to overthrowing Rome. And so he says this, he says, here is what I want you to see about my kingdom. That in my kingdom, you take two people that should hate each other, two people who despise one another, two people who don't agree on anything, and they're going to be one of my 12. And I'm going to bring them into this new way of kingdom, uh, kingdom living and kingdom life under the reign of my kingship to where hearts are changed in such a way to where there can actually be unity in the world in a way that the world would say those two people could never be together. They can never serve together. They can never love together. They can only hate but Jesus is bringing something totally different to the world. And so that's where part of this is coming from, where Paul is saying, look, remember who you are in Christ. Remember what Jesus is doing. 
And and listen to what he says here. He he says, I'm going to read verse two again and listen to the language. He says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy. That phrase in the Greek is one word. Perfect courtesy is one word. It's the same word for meekness. When Jesus said in the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth, it's this word. It's humility, selflessness, and to have this gentleness and this humility toward all people. That's profound. Part of it is profound because what he's saying is he's saying he's hearkening us back to embrace the heart of Jesus himself. Listen to what he tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness, same word, and gentleness, same word, of Christ. He's saying this is Jesus. This is the heart of Jesus to be this way with all people. But where is the the motivation for this for us? What's the fuel behind it? Why would we ever endeavor to be this way with all people? Why would we ever submit ourselves to governing figures? Why would we ever do anything like what he's laying out in verses one and two? And the answer is because of the gospel, because God has been with you the way that I'm calling you to be with other people. Like, do you see that? Like you can't, we cannot miss this. We are to be a distinctly different people because we have been loved by God in a distinctly different way than what the world says love is. Love is, according to the world, I will love you as long as there's something in it for me. We have a selfish love. But what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us through Christ, is he's given us an unthinkable, selfless love. And then he says, you live out through the power of Christ in you the very same love to those around you. And so that's what he does. In verse 3, he begins to give us a fundamental motive. He gave us a fundamental reminder, but now he's given us a fundamental motive. And the fundamental motive is remember the gospel. Remember who you once were. If you're not a Christian, you don't identify with Christ, then what the scriptures say is what I'm about to read in verse 3 is who you are. If you are a Christian, then the, the motivation, the strength behind the ability to love the way that he's calling us in Uh, two in verses one and two comes from the reality of understanding and remembering the gospel of who we once were. Listen to verse three says this for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the world. We've seen that on full display for almost a year now in our country. And we've seen the church participate in that. And Paul's saying, look, that's who we once were. That's not who we are now. We are no longer a people who live foolish, disobedient, astray, various passions, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, which basically means I wish that people would die that I don't like, and if they have more than me, then I hate them for what they have. And that's why he concludes with, we we were hated by others and we, we were hating one another. The greatest English word in all the Bible 
is what comes next. But, but, it's why Second Corinthians, uh, it's why Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is my favorite passage in all the Bible. Because in verses 1 through 3, he lays out the incredibly grim reality of who we are if you don't know Jesus, who we once were if you do know Jesus. And it's bleak. It's nasty. It's that we deserve the wrath of God. It's that, that we're dead in our sins and our trespasses in which we once walked. It's that we follow the prince of the power of the air by, the, by our very nature, which, by the way, that's Satan. There is such bad news, but... Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy and with the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this is a gift of God so that no one should boast. Boast in what? Boast in anything that I did to receive it. Boast in anything I did to earn it. It's boasting, but it's boasting in Jesus because it's only through him that we have anything good in us. Otherwise, we are a foolish, disobedient, hateful, broken, spiritually dead, deserving the wrath of God people because of our sin. And so Paul's saying, remember that. If you want to live out verses 1 and 2 of Titus 3, then you got to remember who you once were. Not so that you wallow in self-condemnation, uh, but so you say, oh yeah, that was me. That, that was what I was. But, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, there's a smile coming to our face as we read. There's a quickening of our hearts as we read because we say, oh my goodness, there's something happening that shouldn't happen. There's, a, there's an awakening of, of the heart of wicked man that only God can produce that man could never achieve. And it's all because the loving kindness of our God who appeared through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In verse 5, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what do we see here? Very quickly, I just want to hit a few highlights. What do we see? First, we saw, I already showed you, we see the need of salvation that Paul reminds us of. But then he says, what's the heart of salvation? What's the heart of salvation? In other words, do you see the heart of God? Look at what it said. What do we see? We see the goodness of God, verse 4. We see the love of God, verse 4. What is it that, that stirs God to do this for us? Is it because he looked upon us and said, I'm pleased with them? No. It's because of his loving kindness. It's because of his goodness. And then what does it say in verses uh, 5 and 7? It says that it's the mercy of God, not by works that we would do, but according to his own mercy. And then what does he say in verse 7? That is by his grace. We see the heart of God here for a people who've done nothing but spit in the face of God, if you will, through our sin, our entire existence. And yet he says, I'm going to be good to them. I'm going to love them. I do love them. 
I'm going to display my mercy to them, and I'm going to be gracious beyond imagination with them. And what are the effects of that? What's the effects of salvation? What do we get? What effect does it have on us? First, we get this washing of regeneration. Regeneration is this fancy word that means uh, being made new. So when you believe upon Christ, you are regenerated in that very moment. Your heart is regenerated. It's this washing of the removal of the stain and dirt of sin and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The renewing of a, of a new heart. This is what God was talking about in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Let's look at it real quick. It says, I will sprinkle, this is long before Christ came. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what God said he would do. And now we get to be the recipients of through Jesus. We get to be regenerated. Our hearts are made new, which means what? Well, it means that we're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come, which means what? It means now that we're declared righteous, that we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit, verse five, and that we've been declared righteous, verse seven. Did you catch it there in verse seven? So that being justified by his grace, justified means declared righteous. We, we're not righteous, but God now sees us through the blood of Christ. He now sees us as righteous because Christ's righteousness is given to us as though it were ours. Being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the last effect that he lays out here, that we now get to be the recipients not only of forgiveness, not only of being declared righteous, not only the removal of sin and guilt and shame, and not only made new, but eternal life. The new heavens and the new earth, the reality for all believers that we are no longer under the condemnation of eternal separation from God in hell, but we are under the blessed hope, not hope, I hope it happens, but hope that biblically is a sure hope, meaning that we get to always look to that day when either Christ returns or we die before he returns and we are with him in glory. And then look at verse eight. There's a fundamental reminder, there's a fundamental motive, but then there's a fundamental fruit. And this is where we'll head next week. I'm only gonna mention it this week. But verse eight says this. It says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's been said many times over, good works never save, but good works flow from those who are saved. And so what we have here in Titus 3, 1 through 8, is we have what, I, what I'll call a salt and light sandwich. The top bread is the first two verses. This is who you are to be. Remind them, this is what it looks like to be salt and light. To live out a distinctly different Christian presence in the world. And the meat of the sandwich where the nourishment comes, what, what's filling 
where your protein comes from is the gospel. It's remembering, oh, what Jesus has done for me, I come back to every day because it's the fuel to live out those first two verses. But then the bottom bread, the bottom bread is verse eight. What comes out of that meat of the sandwich is verses one and two and good works. Good works, devoted to good works. We'll camp out there next week. But as a people who need the reminder constantly of the gospel, we want to take the table. We want to spend time remembering what Christ has done for us. We want to, we want to take time nourishing our souls and remembering and marinating in the broken body of Jesus and his blood shed for us. Father, as we come to the table, Lord, we pray. We pray that you would meet with us in a really significant way. We believe, O oh Lord, that your spirit is present, doing a great work of nourishing our souls through the sacrament. And Father, we, we ask that by your grace and by your goodness and by your love and by your mercy, that you would fuel us for the mission that you've given us as we rejoice in you, O oh Jesus, in the finished work of the cross. Titus 3, verse 4, I'll read it again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.